Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Glory Glory to you, you, Lord Lord Christ. Christ. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, you, Lord Christ. Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so I pray this morning, give us eyes to see it. Give us ears to hear it. Give us a heart to follow you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. We're coming to the end of our summer series on Proverbs. Next week, Tim will preach, and it's the concluding sermon of the series. Hope you're not tired of it yet. Some of you, maybe this is your first time coming to the summer series of Proverbs. We're welcoming you back to the great hot city of Austin, Texas. We've covered a variety of topics in a variety of ways. And fundamentally, what we've said is that wisdom is returning back to reality as God sees it. That wisdom is not just something to be known, it's something to be lived. And we've tried in the previous weeks to apply it to very various facets of life that are addressed in Proverbs, things like our words, friendship, listening, self-control, our time, work. And last week, uh, Josh preached on leaving a legacy on aging well. Our final area of life that we're going to focus on is one of the most commonly addressed realities in all of Proverbs, and it's the topic of wealth, of money, of possessions. Now, we in the church especially are typically very squeamish, even silent in talking about this subject. It feels intrusive. Like a guest who walks in your house and the first place they visit is your master bedroom. You're supposed to stay out of there. The entire house is yours, but leave the bedroom alone. That's how, that's how this feels, not just from you, the people, but also from us in the pulpit. And it's kind of a shame. Solomon and his Proverbs are not so shy about it. The topic of wealth, money, possessions, even poverty, it's mentioned over a hundred times in this book alone. And the book itself was penned by Solomon, who, as we will see, was one of the richest kings to ever grace the earth. If anyone has wisdom to offer on the subject, he knows of both the grandeur and the danger of wealth, of riches, of money, of possessions. Not only that, Jesus himself told more parables about money than any other topic. And if you read the parables, most of them point to the reality that our use of money in our heart tend to be very closely connected. Do you want a window into your very soul? Think about how you utilize money, but even think about just your response to the subject itself. And so it would be foolishly naive for us 
We would be disconnected from reality to not consider our souls in both the ways that we view and use our wealth, our money, our possessions. So this morning, I just want us to face it head on. I want us to start with wealth according to the life of Solomon. Then we'll work our way through Jesus and then finally to ourselves. Usually we end with Jesus. We're not going to do that today. We're going to get to him right in the heart of the sermon. So first, Solomon. Solomon was no stranger to money. He surpassed all the kings of the earth in terms of riches. According, actually, to the book of Kings, uh, it was common that he would receive over 600 talents of gold each year from the nations over which he was king and from the surrounding nations. Okay, that's at least 20,000 pounds of gold on an annual basis for his 40 years reigning as king. Now, I had to look this up, but I believe the going rate of gold right now is north of $1,700 an ounce. If you're good with math, you can figure that out in your head. If you're not, don't use your iPhone. I'll tell you, some biblical scholars and historians have estimated that Solomon's net worth would have been north of $2 trillion in terms of present-day currency and wealth. If large numbers get lost on you, that's five to ten times the estimated net worth of our very own Elon Musk. Can we call him our very own at this point? I think he thinks we're his very own. I'm not sure. Any way you think about it, we're talking about one of the richest men to ever grace the earth. And his enormous wealth and power, uh, it came with it. Well, actually, let me mention this. His enormous wealth and power was the very backdrop for another book that he penned. It's a much less happy book than Proverbs. It's Ecclesiastes. Okay, Ecclesiastes was a sad book. Um, I'll call it even a pessimistic view of the realities of life. Some people say realistic view of the realities of life. But anybody who calls pessimism realism is a pessimist. No optimist does that. But in the book, Solomon's addressing the realities of living in a sin-stained fallen world. And amidst his reflections... He decides this, if anyone can find purpose and joy and meaning this side of heaven, it should be him. He's the archetype of wealth and power. If anyone can find a way to enjoy himself, it should be him. And so Solomon does something very interesting. He goes on a pleasure test. He literally decides that he's going to unleash his wealth and spend all he has on everything that he can dream and think of to get the best for himself that money can buy. And this isn't printed in your order of worship, but but listen, it's Ecclesiastes chapter 2. This is what Solomon said. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And so I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I bought singers, both men and women, and also many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. 
And so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Fascinating, isn't it? He made great works. He built houses, not house, houses. He planted enormous vineyards. It's like his own Napa Valley. He made extravagant parks with the finest pools the world had known. He had thousands of indentured servants and hundreds of concubines from which he was offered every sexual delight that could be known to man or to woman. He had herds and flocks, silver and gold, treasures. He hired the finest musicians, and he threw the most extravagant parties with exquisite food, delicacies, and drinks. And after he unleashed his wealth to finding fullness of joy on this side of heaven, this is what his conclusion was. It's the next verse. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity. All was a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained underneath the sun. It didn't work. His wealth didn't work for him. In the end, it was vanity, but, but why? Is it because wealth and money is itself some kind of evil? Absolutely not. Nowhere in this chapter in Ecclesiastes is money or possessions presented that way. As inherently evil or in, inherently bad. And neither do any of Solomon's Proverbs. As a matter of fact, a lot of times in the Proverbs, wealth and the wise man are closely associated because of his diligence at work. And because of his prudence with his finances. The rest of scripture attests to this as well. Wealth, money, and possessions are presented as a basic good. The creation account shows this itself. When God made the material world, he reflected upon it and always said what? It was good. Any part of creation or the currencies or the commodities associated with it, the assumption of Scripture is that it is a basic good, but it also presents that it's a gift. It comes from somewhere and returns to someone. Like the rest of creation, it's given to man by God himself, but it's to be stewarded and enjoyed And the primary problem that Proverbs presents in Scripture holistically is when a basic good becomes an ultimate good. Because money is a wonderful basic good, but it is a terrible God. That's the primary danger that we see about money in the admonitions of Proverbs 18 and 30. Proverbs 18 tells us the rich man's tendency is to treat his riches as a strong city as a wall of defense, his source of security. But the proverb tells us this is actually just a figment of his own imagination. It won't work. And then in Proverbs 30, there's this honest man who makes an honest prayer. His name is Agur. And he prays to God and he says, give me only what I need, lest I be rich and deny God and say, who is the Lord? The greatest danger with money is that it, more than anything else in all creation, becomes man's most likely alternative to God. 
Jesus testifies to this. In his Sermon on the Mount, he says, you cannot serve both God and money. You will either love the one and hate the other or love the one and despise the other. Money is a basic good, but it proves to be a terrible God. And that's why Solomon's pleasure test doesn't work. His pursuit of joy and fulfillment depended wholly on the power of wealth. And it was ultimately self-terminating. Did you hear him? I bought myself was the refrain of his pleasure test. Believing and living as if he could find fullness of joy by excessive spending. And spending it on himself. Self-terminating wealth never results in greater joy. I'm going to say that again. Self-terminating wealth never results in greater joy. When our wealth exclusively or excessively terminates on us, it's really just a sign that money is transferring in us from a good to a God. We know this, don't we? We passively and actively interact with money and possessions and wealth this way all the time. It's true of us who have very little, in case you're in the room and have very little. It's true of those of us who have very much, in case you're in the room and you have very much. It's true of the excessive spender who uses wealth as a means for self-gratification and self-validation to have that outfit or that car or that house in that neighborhood to get that body to have that membership, to eat at that restaurant, okay? It's also true of the excessive saver who uses wealth as a means for self-protection and self-defense. It's a false sense of security. Both are prone to use wealth for self-terminating ends. One for immediate pleasure to cover their insecurities and the other for delayed pleasure to alleviate their insecurities, There will never be enough for either one, will there? At the end of the day, they both experience what Solomon proved. Self-terminating wealth never results in greater joy. There is an alternative. There's another way. It's self-sacrificing wealth. It's the way of Christ. This passage from our epistolary reading in 2 Corinthians is written to the church of Corinth, but the Macedonians are given as an example, and it says out of their poverty they were giving. But the primary focus of the passage actually doesn't conclude on them, it concludes on him. Look at verse 7. As you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in love for others, see that you excel in giving as well. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is different. This is otherworldly, a totally different way of considering wealth. It deserves a few minutes of our attention. The first thing we see is it says Jesus was rich. When you think of Jesus, do you think of him as rich? I would venture to say probably not. We often associate him with the poor because he lived a very simple life 
but we forget just how rich he really was. And I would also say that because we forget how rich he really was, we don't understand the magnitude of his sacrifice. We don't consider his wealth. We don't consider his worth. And so we don't actually accurately consider what he gave up. Scripture says he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of everything created. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible, the material, and invisible, the immaterial. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things belong to him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If this is true, simply put, all of creation is his. Every part of it, creation, commodities, currencies, they're all his. If money is a basic good, it is his basic good. Paul says this to this church in Corinth, what did you have that you did not receive? And if you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Jesus was rich. And this ultimate reality challenges us when we talk about our wealth or money or possessions, that any time we say the word my, it should be replaced with his. Always. And some of you might say, I worked hard to earn my money. And I would say you probably did. With the breath that he supplied and the life that he gave and the job that he offered you, you did. It's still his. That's why we use the word steward. He supplies it all. All of creation is his. Jesus was rich in every way. But this passage also says this. Jesus became poor. He divested his wealth. He gave it up. Scripture tells us, though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God, a thing to be held onto with a tight fist, but he emptied himself of all his divine riches and divine rights. He took the form of a servant instead of a deity. And being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself even lower, gave up his human life, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How poor exactly did he become? Yes, he was bankrupt physically, but emotionally, socially, relationally, completely divested of dignity, of societal standing, of basic rights, from a throne to a cross. From riches to rags. No one does this. Why did he do it? It's the most shocking reality of all from this passage. Jesus was rich and became poor that you and I might become rich. You know what this means? It means he became poor willingly. On purpose. Not by force, but cheerfully, by choice, by desire. And perhaps saying that he divested his wealth is not the best use of words because what we see here is that he didn't just divest it, he invested it. 
not in or on himself like Solomon did, but in and on you. And forgive me for saying this, but you're a pretty risky investment. You're more like a failed business and you need someone to buy some distressed debt or a startup who's just barely begun. And he took the riches of heaven and earth that are rightfully his and he self-sacrificially invested it in you. His inheritance is yours through faith. It's wild. It's fascinating. It's otherworldly. Through his cross and resurrection, he says, whatever is mine is yours. And like he always does, he never asks anything of us that he has not done for us. Asking us to declare what we call mine his. He gave all that he has for all that you are, or maybe that you're not. And he did it on purpose and with great joy. That is the alternative. Self-sacrificing wealth does result in greater joy. That's the secret to experiencing freedom from wealth. Whether you are rich or you are poor, as you let go of money, you will find that money starts to let go of you. It's fascinating how it works that way. It's radical generosity. It's the way of Christ, the gospel. As you let go of riches, they tend to let go of you. And though Proverbs is pregnant with with numerous admonitions that we're not going to cover today, I really just want us to finish today by applying this mindset to one arena. And it's the arena mentioned here in our proverb. It's the arena of first fruits. Proverbs 3.9, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Okay, first fruits were the cream of the crop, the best wheat of the harvest, the prize of the flock. And it was a common and commanded practice for the people of Israel that, that they would offer their first and best to the Lord. Okay? And the basic premise is what we just discussed. It's all his, and being from him, we can and should return the first portion to him. This is not a foreign practice if you have had children or do have children. You've run into this struggle in real life. You buy your children a pack of gum or a candy bar, and you appropriate the dad tax. You take the first piece or you take the first bite. What happens? No, it's mine. Right? And you're like, little minion, settle down. I just bought this for you and gave it to you. I deserve the first bite. Right? We experienced this recently with Frosties. First one comes through the window, Allison takes the first bite, and you would think the world had ended. First fruits, that which is his is returned to him, not the leftovers, but the first of it. We don't always grow up, do we? There's a real-life adult example that I've faced personally and pastorally. It's this question, do you give based on gross or net income? Have any of you thought that question? And while I am sympathetic to the question itself, uh, I try not to practice binding someone's conscience. Rather, I try to ask curious questions, which can sometimes be more frustrating, but I think that's what Jesus would do. 
And at the end of the day, I I just find the arguments fall flat on their face because of what it potentially reveals, the question. Why am I so hesitant to give the first fruits to him? Scripture warns us here that if we don't honor God with our wealth, we will soon honor wealth as our God. And I would tell you as a practice that offering the first fruits of whatever amount of money you might have, rich or poor, is the best spiritual practice for getting money to let go of you. The poor widow understood this, didn't she? Did you see her in our gospel reading? Imagine the scene just for a moment. Okay, the, the offering was not a private event in the day at the temple. Metal boxes. There would be lots of clanging because it was mostly coins. It wasn't cash. So this, this widow, she shows up, and you can imagine the courage that it took for her to come alone and to present her offering knowing what she had to offer. We can assume not only that her husband has died, but that she doesn't have family taking care of her. There's a lot of shame involved, even in the offering itself. And she shows up, and she throws two copper coins. Your Bible probably says two pennies, because that's about what it was worth. And she throws it in, and it clangs. I'm curious, if you had two copper coins, what would you do? Save it? That seems like a wise thing to do. Spend it. If it's all you got, then enjoy what you got. Isn't it fascinating? She gives it. I doubt there would be many in here who would recommend that practice to her, given her situation. And she gives out of her poverty. She honors the Lord with her first fruits, and Jesus notices it, and he commends her because it's not about how much you give. It's that you give, and it's when and why you give because self-sacrificial giving leads to greater joy. Um, I met a homeless man at our church in the courtyard a month or two ago before our service. I was getting coffee, and he walked up and started to get coffee as well. Some of you are saying, really? Yes, really. This really happened. I spoke to him for a little while, and we started to walk in after I heard three or five minutes of his story, and he heard a little bit of mine. And we entered the narthex in the back. You know what he didn't do? He didn't ask for assistance. He didn't demand help. He didn't even go over to our water cooler on a hot day to couple his hot coffee with something that would actually satisfy his thirst. He immediately walked over to the offering plate. And I watched. He took a crinkled $1 bill out of his tattered jeans and he put it in the offering plate that I pass by and rarely notice until I'm down here receiving it to put it on this table. Friends, I struggled to hold back tears serving the Eucharist that morning. It's a real-life example of this widow. A man who had very little and was giving his first fruits as an act of worship as he walked in. 
And it was nothing. What good will that do the church? It's a dollar. Jesus commends it. He rejoices over it. Because the window into that man's soul was that he was willing to give not only his first, but his all. Proverbs 11, one gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. A generous person will prosper, and whoever refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Self-terminating wealth does not produce joy. Self-sacrificial wealth produces joy. And at the end of the day, God did not withhold his firstborn son from us. Let us not withhold our firstfruits from him. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, be our true treasure. Let all our earthly treasures be put in their rightful place. We thank you for your generosity to us in Christ. We come now to feast on his riches, bread and body, wine and blood. So I pray, help us to become generous ourselves in Christ's name. Amen.